that as we begin, that I would read again the passage that our president quoted to us uh, on national television yesterday from Isaiah chapter 40. We read these words in verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth by their ho- that leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. I think if uh, all of us are familiar with the fact that as they're penetrating space with telescopes, the number of stars is so (laughs) astronomical, not to at all try to put a pun in there, but that to think that God can actually name every single star is absolutely, (laughs) I mean, computers couldn't even, couldn't do it. Even the best computer in the world couldn't do it because there are hundreds of trillions of stars out there. And he was glorified yesterday, if you heard the interview with the pastor of the church of Commander Husband, who was a born-again Christian, and and the other fellow, the black fellow, I've forgotten his name, both go to the same church, both born-again men, both wonderful fathers, exemplary individuals. Their pastor was on uh, national television, and and the mayor of the town uh, had just been with Commander Husband, you probably heard this, at a Michael W. Smith concert, and Husband had said, please pray for us as we're up there. And, and then, of course, the senator uh, from Florida who spoke, who's also a born-again Christian, a lot of Christian exposure yesterday, a lot of it. And I'm not saying that's why it happened, but certainly in it, uh, God does glorify himself. And so we need to pray for the state of Israel as well. Uh, This was uh, a great blow to them, and maybe God can use this in some way, somehow. Maybe the exposure to the testimonies uh, on our television will somehow speak uh, to some, at least over there in Israel. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that nothing happens that surprises you, that you are there in the midst of it all. And Lord, you were on that shuttle yesterday in the lives of at least those two men, and and I don't know the the spiritual status of the others. But Lord, I I pray that in the testimony, uh, as our our president read from Isaiah, spoke, quoted Isaiah, and as we heard testimonies uh, on the news yesterday, I pray that your word will, will not return void. that will bear fruit, that men and women will be touched around this nation and around the world. I pray in the state of Israel, Lord, where you, you have raised up this, this state, and yet the, the people of that state, very few honor you. But Lord, we're praying that that will change, that there will be a mighty revival in that land. Uh, Father, and, and that maybe even the events of yesterday will, will begin to produce a breakthrough. We know that you are almighty, that the evil one has been crushed under the foot of Christ. And so we pray that your kingdom will advance as a result of this. Comfort the families, Lord, of these who died yesterday. Be with the husbands and wives and children uh, that have been left behind. And uh, pray that they will draw strength from you. Father, we distrust now that you will be our teacher this day as we study your word. As we continue to look at the life of this great man, David, and uh, pray that the truths that you have for each one of us will be real to us 
and not just academic, but uh, part of the very warp and woof of who we are in our relationship with you. I thank you for each life here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the 19th chapter of 2 Samuel. I'd like to read beginning at the um, 24th verse. 2 Samuel 19, 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, literally grandson of Saul, because he was Jonathan's son, and Jonathan was the son of Saul, uh, came down to meet the king. And he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came home in peace. And it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O my lord, the king... My servant deceived me, for your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God, therefore do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. You may remember that Ziba first encountered David after David was forced to flee from Jerusalem when Absalom was, was coming to occupy the city. Remember, David didn't want there to be fighting in the city, in the royal city, and bloodshed there, so he left the city. And if you're familiar with Jerusalem, you know that as soon as you leave the city of Jerusalem going east, you go into the valley of the Kadron River. And, and it's, it's a fairly steep valley, not terribly deep, but fairly steep. And, and then as soon as you go up the uh, east side of the Kadron Valley, you're up on the Mount of Olives. And you go up to the top of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is, are not really high mountains, you know, 2,800 feet or something like that. A little bit higher than the city of Jerusalem. And, and he went over the top and he was on the, going on the downside. So he was, you see the Mount of Olives is written there, a little, that little triangle right there. I don't know if you can see it from way back there, but anyway, it's, it's right adjacent. Well, it gives the elevation there, 2,870. I only missed it by 70 feet, that's not too bad. And on the downside is where Ziba met him. And you remember Ziba met him and he had beds and he had donkeys and he had food. I mean, this was a pre-planned thing on the part of Ziba. And uh, Ziba, of course, uh, was asked by David, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba told David, Mephibosheth has decided to join the revolt the coup against you because he's hoping that out of it he will be put on the throne of Israel. What we discover, of course, is that David was not in any mental condition at the time or emotional condition to really think about what Ziba was saying because if he had thought about it and analyzed it, it made no sense. He knew Absalom, his son, wanted the throne for himself. He wasn't arranging a coup to put Mephibosheth on the, fr on the throne. So the whole thing didn't hang together. It was illogical. But David at that time just emotionally reacted because Mephibosheth wasn't there and Ziba was there and, and Ziba had brought him succor. And so he responded, 
by saying, okay, then all of Mephibosheth's land is now yours. Now Ziba had been caring for the land. Zeba and his sons had been working the land, caring for the land on, that, on behalf of Mephibosheth because David had given all of Saul's, Saul Jonathan's lands to Mephibosheth. But, but he was living in the royal palace and eating at the royal table and so it was up to Zeba to take care of everything. And so now we have uh, this event which we are reading about in this uh, particular passage. Ziba had done what he did purely for his own profit. And there's a stark contrast here between Mephibosheth and Ziba. And of course, I think this contrast is common to the human race. There are people out there who, who, are, who are caring and giving and honest and men of integrity. And, and we know that on the other side, there are people who are, are, are always wanting for themselves. They're, they want aggrandizement. They, they want to be honored. They, they want, you know, everything's for me. And, and that's sort of what we see here in Mephibosheth and in Ziba. Mephibosheth comes to David now. When David's on his way back, Mephibosheth comes to him. And, and uh, David said, oh, now you're here. Where were you before? And so Mephibosheth has his chance, his opportunity to give David the truth and to protest Ziba's slander. And, and what's interesting is that uh, Mephibosheth supports his words here in three ways. First, he appears as if he has been mourning. And the scripture says that he hadn't cut his mustache or washed himself or taken care of his crippled feet for the time that David had been out of Jerusalem. Well, that was weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and so he appears before David in pretty, pretty bad shape. You know, it doesn't look so good and, and, and so forth. But then secondly, you'll notice he doesn't contest the fairness of David's ruling. He simply gives David the truth. I, I wanted to come, but Ziba lied to me and, and he didn't bring the donkey to me. He took off and left me there and I couldn't come because I had crippled feet. I couldn't follow you and there was no donkey for me to ride on so I was stuck there in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, he says, my joy at your being back is so great that Mephibosheth can keep the land. Mephibosheth can keep the land. Ziba can keep the land. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Mephibosheth is talking. <laughs> Mephibosheth, thank you uh, all. I'm glad you're awake. <laughs> Mephibosheth claim, uh, says that Ziba, Ziba can uh, keep, keep all the land. I'm glad there's somebody here to keep me straight. Question. Yes. Suppose now that Ziba lied to him, yet his decision is to split the land between the two. I mean, he lied to the king usually that ends up with body parts getting chopped off and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't get it. <laughs> well, that, that's the point I'm trying, I, I'm planning to make. You're, you're, you're one step ahead of me and that's good. That's fine. That's good, you know. I, I'm glad to see the wheels, wheels turning <laughs> rather than being frozen, rusted, stopped. <laughs> it displays a weakness in David's character. Again, I, I think part of the point that at least strikes me and I'm, I'm trying to make to all of, all of us together is that David was a man to be honored and exalted, but David was not a man to put on a pedestal because he had feet of clay. 
He was a man who, like you and I are, this is one of the reasons why we feel, I feel uh, so strongly that the churches that exalt people, you know, the liturgical churches that, that make statues for saints and exalt all these people are glossing over the humanity of these people. And, and they're failing to see that these people had faults and failures just as you and I do, and, and, and even to their deathbed. You know, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, but that cannot be said about any of us. None of us, faith goes through a whole year, let's say, of temptation without ever sinning. That just isn't our condition. And even the greatest of all the saints fails. And so David, even in his greatness and, and his love for God and God's love for him, the, the point is God loves us in spite of all of our failures. And God wants to walk with us in spite of all of our failures. He knows that we are weak. And so we see this weakness in David's character. And it's revealed here because he had publicly pardoned Shimei. Remember Shimei is a guy who had, who had cursed at him and thrown dirt at him while David was leaving and after he'd already met Ziba. And, and, and he comes back and he falls at David's feet and he, he confesses his sin and, and David forgives him and said, well, I won't execute you. Well, you know, later on he will be executed, but, but not by David. And so in effect, David publicly pardons, I don't know exactly the right word to use here. As far as David is concerned, he pardons Shimei. David will not execute Shimei. Solomon will. But here we, and he admitted his treason. But here we have David only half forgiving Mephibosheth, who apparently did not commit any treason. Because Ziba had lied. It's Brad to sing. Ziba had lied. And yet David here, what David should have done, if David were just here, Ziba should have paid for his lying, for his character defamation, and as <laughs> Brad said, he, he was worthy of, of death. Yeah. And Mephibosheth should have been exonerated. He should have been given all of, his, all of his land back, and David should have said, I'm sorry I ever listened to Ziba. You know, you've been an honorable man as long as I've known you. But David does not do this. He only gives half of Mephibosheth's property back to him. And Mephibosheth says, you know, just to have you here, I, I don't even need that half. Which, which exhibits something about his character, which is pretty amazing. And, and of course, you can't give it any kind of a tribal leaning because both of those men are Benjamites. Both Ziba and Mephibosheth are Benjamites. So it doesn't have anything to do with the tribe. What, what is interesting here is the Bible is silent as to whether David ever does correct this sometime in the future. It doesn't say. But I have a feeling that David, at least in his heart, got it right at some point here. Let me read uh, from the 101st Psalm, Psalm 101, where David says, I will sing of the loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. 
I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever strictly slanders his neighbor, him will I destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. I mean, Zeb is written all over that, that passage, you know. And so I, I, I think probably this came to David maybe later in his life and you know, maybe he did set it right as far as Mephibosheth is concerned and the Bible doesn't report it, we don't know. We know he does nothing to Zeba. Larry? No, I'm not. I, no, I agree with you that if she was Zeba, Zeba particularly was um, dishonest here, but I wonder if David was trying to right a wrong. He, um, in his desire to honor Jonathan and prove his loyalty there earlier gave charge to Ziba to take care of, of the Jews without, without any kind of compensation to this parent, at least. Um, and that's different if it's your king you're serving, but I'm not sure that that was entirely fair of a judgment originally. Maybe he was trying to even that up a little bit. That doesn't excuse the line Maybe there's a little more that's implied in that. Well, that's possible. The typically down through history, if um, someone is given charge of the lands of someone else and the person that someone else is an absentee landlord, um, the person who has charge uh, is able to sustain himself from the land that he's working. In other words, he's giving the profits to the absentee landlord, but the costs, are, his living is part of the costs. And so he is supporting himself from the lands uh, and his family. So, but, but what you're saying could still be true. Ziba was the one who reported where Mephibosheth was in the first place so that David could find him. And Ziba had been caring for the land faithfully in the interim. So maybe he felt that uh, Ziba should be rewarded in this way. That's a possibility, yes somewhat responsible for causing the jealousy that precipitated the problem. Maybe. But didn't Ziba also meet him and he was faithful when a lot of people had fallen away from him too? Yes, but the question is why did Ziba meet him? Yeah. God looks on the hearts and I suppose we can't except what, what seems to be implied. So yes, and, and I suppose we could say that whatever was the motivation of Ziba, he was there. And he did help David. So his motivation might have been <clears throat> self-serving, but it was a help to David. So there's no doubt that that could be valuable. And thinking about Mephibosheth, uh, frankly, he was living in the palace, which I'm sure was no shabby deal. And to be put out and be responsible for a lot of land in his condition may not have been a good thing. So in the all, the sum total of everything, he was still a welcome guest of David because he'd been mm -hmm. exonerated. So I think maybe if we were in the same position, we would have chosen to be in David's presence rather than out there taking care of a lot of responsibility. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mephibosheth didn't need the proceeds in order to survive. But possession of land in Israel was 
was freedom. It, it was, it made you who you were. And if he possessed no land, then his children and grandchildren would have no inheritance. And so half the land, I think, was, you know, maybe what David did was, was the fair thing. But in terms of this psalm, Ziba deserved a little bit more than he got in terms of punishment. That, I believe, can be validated. Good. You're thinking. Hilda's thinking, too. <laughs> well, I think that David, as a uh, shadow and picture of Christ, was showing grace to this servant, Ziba. To Ziba? Mercy? The, the thing different here is David is the king. Therefore, he is the political head of state. And to lie to David is not the same thing as king as to lie to your neighbor. Because David has the power and the authority and the right to, uh, to bring about punishment. Uh, because you're not just lying to a person. You're, in effect, lying to the representative of God who is responsible for the entire state and to be an example. Well, good. We got that one solved. <laughs> now we can move on to the next one. <laughs> you know, that's what, what's so neat about the scripture is that you can find many different truths in it, but you can't come to the place where you can say, I know everything God wanted to say from this passage to anybody in any time in history. No, you can't say that. The Bible is a powerful, mysterious uh, word to us all in all generations. Well, let's, let's go on in chapter 19 at verse 31 and let's uh, dissect another man. <laughs> oh, this guy's a good guy. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogelim, and he went on to Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he was at Maonaim, for he was a very great man. And the king said to Barzillai, You cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I yet to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Or can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should your servant be added an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return that he may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what is good in your sight. The king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what is good in your sight. And whatever you require of me, I will do, uh, I will do for you. All the people crossed over the Jordan and the king crossed too. And the king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his place. And he returned to his place. So we are now down at the Jordan River, down here in the southern part of Gilead, which is this area here where, where David has been. David was up at the city of Maonaim, which was right about in there. 
And Barzillai had come to him while he was there and ministered to him. And now they're down here at the fords of the Jordan, get ready to cross over, not too far from the site of Jericho, uh, crossing over and, of course, going to ascend back into Jerusalem. That is the setting uh, for this particular encounter. David's encounter with Barzillai here teaches us some other important truths. Only these are by example. At the end of the 17th chapter of, of 2 Samuel, we saw how that Barzillai had on his own, without invitation, come to David and brought him lots of supplies, food and bedding and animals and all the things that David needed, while David was in, an, in the process of trying to raise an army to defend his position as king and, and to do battle with his son Absalom. What we find here is that Barzillai was a wealthy man. He was a Gileadite. He was an octogenarian. He was a prince in the land. He had everything he needed and then some. He was able to supply David out of his surplus without any great difficulty. And what we'd also discover is he was utterly loyal to David. He was willing to die in order to be loyal to David. And he could have died because had Absalom won in the encounter between David and Absalom, Absalom would certainly have punished all of those that helped his father David. And Barzillai would have been one of those who would have been punished. In this passage, Barzillai comes down with David to the fords of the Jordan and crosses over the Jordan with David. David, in response to what he had done, what Barzillai had done for him, offers him a position in Jerusalem. It doesn't really say what that was, but from what Bar Barzillai's response, it seems it must have been a position of some authority, advisor of some sort, maybe to the king, uh, because he starts talking about, you know, I'm old and what kind of judgment could I render, you know, I don't hear so well and other kinds of things that he protests here. And particularly he argues, I do not want you to reward me for what I have done for you. Because he's in effect saying, I did it because I love you. I'm loyal to you. It's my duty and I expect no reward. In effect, I don't need your reward anyway. So because of David's urging, he said, well, why don't you take Chimham in my place? Now, the scripture doesn't tell us who Chimham was. The word Chimham means longing. So maybe, uh, you know, it, his, the meaning of his name could imply that he was a late son coming to Barzillai. Someone, he had longed for a son all of his life, and finally in his later years, a, a son came. You know, that, that's just kind of reading between the lines. But Josephus does say that he believed that Chimham was Barzillai's son. Now, Josephus wasn't exactly near the time period, but he's a whole lot closer to it than we are by, you know, about, about 1900 years. David then promised to Barzillai, I will do for Chimham whatever you say I should do for this man. Well, we don't know what that ultimately met, meant, because interestingly enough, you never find this name in Scripture again until you get to the 41st chapter of Jeremiah. 
Let me just read you. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 41, verse 17. You read these words. And they went and stayed in Gareth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem, in order to proceed to Egypt. Now, that's an inspiring verse, isn't it? That's my life verse. <laughs> well, maybe not. But uh, Gareth means lodging. And, and so it, it's almost like Chimham's Ham's Inn or Chimham's Motel. That's the only other time the name shows up in Scripture. Some commentators, now obviously this is a bit of a shot in the dark, but some commentators think that the reward that David gave to Chimham was a piece of property that he could then be uh, endowed with land and that his land was near Bethlehem, which was, of course, David's hometown. <laughs> and that it had been handed down from generation to generation until it's noted again in the days of Jeremiah. That's 500 years later. You know. <laughs> so again, you know, like I say, it's, it's common, some commentators mention this, but it is a bit of a shot in the dark because 500 years, certainly somebody else could have been called Chim Ham, you would think, uh, in, in that length of time. But whatever the case may be, the guy never shows up again. You know, David never mentions him again. Scripture never mentions him again as far as his servants in David's house. But a lot of people are not mentioned as servants in David's house. Even David's concubines, who we'll be talking about here uh, in a little while, they're not even named. It's amazing how many people in Scripture are referred to but never named. And I think part of that is because the focus of Scripture is upon God and upon what He does. And you know, names do show up. There are thousands of names in Scripture. But uh, the point is not to focus on humans, but to focus on what God does for us as humans. The account of David and Barzillai demonstrates at least two important truths, as I see it. You may, you may find others. But one of the truths that I find here is that loyalty is extremely important. It's one of the greatest attributes that a person can have is the attribute of loyalty, especially in our day and age when disloyalty is the, is the, is, is the name, uh, I mean, is the attitude of most Americans. Disloyal to your husbands and wives, disloyal to your marriage, disloyal to your family, disloyal to your government, disloyal to whatever. And of course, our number one loyalty is to be to, of course, the Lord. He is our king. And we need to be as Barzillai was in the sense that we are willing to risk everything to serve our king as he did. He gave of his resources and he risked his life because David was on the run. Absalom was building a powerful army. The, you know, if anybody were, was, was laying odds on this situation, they would laid odds with Absalom. After all, he's young, he's energetic, he's handsome, and, and David's an older man now, and yeah, he had a little bit going for him, but, you know, it seems like when we get to the days of Rehoboam, we'll discover that many times people don't, even, even in biblical days, People didn't lean on the wise and the old as they should. They went with the young and the, and, and, and the unlearned often, unwise. Jesus told us a little bit about what that loyalty should mean in the 16th chapter of Matthew. It's a passage that you all certainly know very well. 
Matthew 16, reading at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And of course, what that means, to save his life for his own desires, his own purposes, his own wishes. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. It doesn't necessarily mean, of course, dying, although that can be. But it means giving our lives into God's hand for his purposes. And for what will a man be profited? He gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So Jesus makes it very clear that Barzillai's example is the example that we all need to follow. Loyalty to David also implied loyalty to Yahweh. We are to be loyal to our king to the point that we will lose our life for his sake, maybe literally, but certainly figuratively in the fact that we live it for him and, and not for, for our honor and for our glory. We're, we're not a Louis XIV who says, as the sun shines on the earth, so I shine on my nation of France. He made the very interesting statement, l'état c'est moi, you Frenchman. I am the state. I am France. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar said that once. He didn't use French. But he stood on the roof of the palace of Babylon, said the same basic thing, and God said, oh yeah, well for seven years you're going to eat grass naked in the, in the palace lawn. <laughs> that's, how, that's how wonderful you are. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Before the, first, before the Gulf War, he, was already, he had already a big sign up. He was Nebuchadnezzar III, and he was rebuilding Babylon. And, uh, yeah. At least Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the Nebuchadnezzar of, of the day of Daniel, when it was all said and done, said, I command everybody in this country to honor the Lord God of heaven, the God of Daniel. Ooh. Well, let's pray that'll happen to Saddam. That would really change things. Talk about shaking up the world. Well, secondly, let me just uh, finish this uh, passage. The second major truth that we see in this passage by implication is that there's really only one purpose why God gives to some people more than they need of this world's goods. And that purpose is to share with those who do not have their needs met in this life. That's the only purpose. God never gives us excessive uh, amounts of wealth in this world to, to just lavish upon ourselves. That is not the purpose. The purpose of it is to share with those who do not have their basic needs being met. And of course, examples from this are all over Scripture. And I, I just picked um, a couple of New Testament passages that are really, you know, they cut to the chase here. You, you know them very well, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, reading at verse 6. This is a very 
powerful passage relative to this very truth in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's often quoted, of course, from the pulpit relative to offerings in church, rightly so, but it doesn't just apply to offerings in church. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You know, notice the abundance is not like it is for the men and women of the world to buy a bigger apartment and a bigger yacht and a bigger this, but for every good deed. As it is written, he scatters, uh, scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything in, for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer in your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that, that's one of the things that has always attracted me to the Christian Missionary Alliance. You know, not that everybody in the Christian Missionary Alliance is, uh, a lib is liberal in, in, as, as he or she ought to be, but uh, as a denomination, it's always given a much higher percentage than most of the other denominations have, particularly, of course, for world missions. World missions is still a thrust of the, of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and I trust it always will be. But that doesn't, of course, mean that each of us as individuals don't need to be challenged because it's kind of easy sometimes to just become set in our ways and, and think, you know, uh, everything I've got is for my own good and to fail to uh, reach out to those whom we can, of course. We have to be, but in that, I think we need to be very careful because a lot of organizations out there are saying, yeah, send us your money because we're taking care of the poor. Well, really, are they? Well, you know, that's where we have to be extremely careful and good stewards to see that what we are doing is truly to the glory and the honor of God and it's, uh, it, it becomes part of God's indescribable gift. And Barzillai is, is a powerful example of that. You know, he didn't give it all away. He still had a home and animals and, and family and everything, but, but he wasn't you know, reticent to bless his king. And we must not be reticent to bless our king either. Well, the next passage in 2 Samuel we discovered, there's a, there are other verses too uh, in, in the New Testament we can find having to do with uh, liberality and giving, as you, as you well know. But the enemy never lets up. And we'll be seeing that as we look at the next section. And there is another rebellion. We just get over one. And another one breaks out. It's really mind-boggling.